Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 18 is the Old Testament reading. Revelation 15, the whole chapter, will be the sermon text for today. Exodus 15, hear now the word of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord. Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 15. We will read the whole chapter. It is a rather brief chapter here in the book of Revelation. Uh, John the Apostle writes and says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues 
of the seven angels were finished. So far the reading of God's holy word. Our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it as well. So I'd like for you to notice three things about this text before we go on to make application from it uh, to our lives. Uh, First of all, notice again the presence of recapitulation in the book of Revelation. Uh, Secondly, notice how this passage prepares us for the judgment scenes that are to come. And thirdly, notice how this passage pauses to give us a glimpse into the world of the redeemed. And so first of all, brothers and sisters, let us simply recognize the presence again of recapitulation. Uh, Recapitulation is a fancy word. Uh, that is used by Bible scholars, and you know I'm quite fond of it, uh, to describe the repetition that we encounter in the book of Revelation. And and you know by now, and I don't need to prove it or to convince you of it, uh, that the book is not ordered chronologically, as some do suppose, so that what is said in chapter 15 will actually happen after what what was said in chapter 14. But instead, uh, the book of Revelation moves in cycles, telling and retelling the story of redemption, giving special attention to the time between Christ's first and second coming, and to the time of the end. Uh, But we should recognize by now that the repetition that we encounter in the Apocalypse, which is another term for the book of Revelation, it's far from monotone. In other words, uh, the book of Revelation does not simply say the same thing over and over again without any variation, but with each cycle it reveals something new. Uh, With each pass, some aspect of the history of, of redemption is emphasized that was not emphasized before. And so here is one of those places where the presence of of this recapitulation, I think, is very obvious. In verse 1, we read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so for now, uh, simply notice that this new heavenly vision shown to John will describe to us the outpouring or finishing of the wrath of God at the end of time. And if you're paying careful attention to the book of Revelation as we study through it, you should probably think to yourselves, but haven't we already been told about the outpouring of God's wrath at the end of time? It seems as if we've heard about this event uh, before? And the answer would be yes, we have heard about it. Uh, In fact, we've heard about it numerous times. Remember that in Revelation chapter 14, at the end of the chapter, we did hear about the time of the end and the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the, un- uh, the ungodly. Just simply look back at 1419. In 1419, we read and do now read, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 Stadia. And so uh, there, uh, the, the outpouring of God's wrath was depicted for us, the, the wrath of God that will be poured out at the end of time. Uh, the final judgment was also depicted way back in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Uh, the song that the 24 elders sang in 
11, 17 through 18 proves the point. Here is what they sang. They said, we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And so uh, the elders there are giving praise to God, and, and what are they saying? Your wrath has been poured out. You have judged the wicked of the earth, and in fact, you have also rewarded your people. What did we have there then in 11, uh, 17 through 18, except a, a depiction, a description of the time of the end when God's wrath will be poured out. And the final judgment was also depicted in the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals back in Revelation chapter 6, 12 through 17, and also in 8, 1 uh, through 5. Uh, listen to six twelve. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sun, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so what is this except a description of the last day when the wrath of God will finally be poured out upon uh, the ungodly? And in 8.1, the description of the final judgment is more subtle, but it is there. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. And if you remember, I did argue that the silence in heaven was the kind of silence Appropriate for those witnessing something as terrible and awesome as the final judgment. There was no celebrating uh, this final judgment in heaven on the one hand, uh, nor uh, did anyone object to the judgment on the other hand. There was just silence in heaven. Uh, only solemn silence. 8.5 says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peal, peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Uh, this is a portrayal of the final judgment. And so I'm, sim I'm simply trying to demonstrate to you the, the presence of, of recapitulation that by now here in chapter 15 we have been given glimpse of, glimpses of the final judgment over and over again. Uh, it's not hard to see this, that the book of Revelation recapitulates, not only in its portrayals of the final judgment, but in other respects too, uh, particularly in its portrayals of the redemption of God's elect. And so the book is constantly giving us different viewpoints on the preservation and salvation of God's people, and also upon the judgment, both partial and full, of those not in Christ who do stubbornly persist in their sins. Why do you think the book recapitulates, brothers and sisters? I think it is so that we might have painted for us a very vivid picture of what will happen in the time between Christ's first and second comings. Something new is kind of added each time. Um, but I think it is also this, that we might be thoroughly impressed with, with just how uh, severe the judgments of God are, that it, it might sink into us. You know how thick-skulled we tend to be. We hear something once and it doesn't really impact us. We hear it again and it might begin to, but by the third or fourth or fifth or seventh time, all of a sudden we begin to get it. 
My goodness, the salvation that God has provided for us in Christ Jesus is indeed very great. And his judgments are very terrible and awesome. And by the end of the book, hopefully, if the Spirit is working, we will run to Jesus and cling to him so that we might have this salvation and flee from the wrath to come. I do understand that by this time you, you might be tempted to complain against me saying, Pastor, you also recapitulate often on the subject of recapitulation. But I do so because it's important. It's very important. And I would argue that, the most, that most of the errors that are made in the interpretation of the book of Revelation are made because fee- people fail to recognize this literary feature. Uh, what they do is they read the book as if it's chronological and then they begin to take all of these passages and they spread them out on a timeline. And that's how you end up with just those very complex uh, dispensational charts. Uh, things that are really different descriptions of one event are spread out as if they are uh, references to, to very many events. I think it's just a fundamental um, flaw in regard to one's um, interpretive method. God in his grace shows us what is true over and over again concerning the time between Christ's first and second coming and the time of the end in this glorious book. And with each pass, I think more texture and detail is added to this story. And so the book of Revelation is like a painting, I think, wherein the artist comes to the canvas over and over again, first of all, to lay down a base And then to add detail, and then to shade, and then to finally texture that piece of work. By the time we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we will have a very beautiful and vivid and detailed picture of how things will go for the people of God in particular, and between the time of Christ's first and second coming. Secondly, notice how this passage prepares us for the judgment scenes that are to come. Uh, Really, this passage is preparatory. It, it, It prepares In verse 1, John describes another sign in heaven. Uh, This sign, he says, is great and astonishing. Uh, In fact, we've already encountered many things that I would describe as great and astonishing in the book of Revelation. But here, uh, John wants to get our attention that this is uh, particularly great and astonishing and amazing. And what does he see? He sees seven angels with seven plagues. The language should catch your attention. They have in their hands, they are given seven what? Plagues. So think about the Bible for a moment here. Uh, Seven plagues is what they have. These, he says, are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So these seven plagues given to these seven angels, whatever they are, we will find out not long from now, are uh, the completion of the wrath of God. Uh, These seven plagues, as they are called, will differ from the seven seals and the seven trumpets, which we have already encountered. Do you remember those? Um, Those seven seals and trumpets. In that some of those, and I'm referring here to the seals and trumpets now, described not the final judgment, but partial judgments. Are you following along with me? Remember back to the seal cycle and to the trumpet cycle, and remember that some of the seals and trumpets did not have to do with the final judgment, but had to do with other things, either partial judgments or different things altogether. Indeed, the sixth and seventh seals did describe the final judgment. I've already made reference to that, but seals one through five did not. 
Remember that seal five provided us with a glimpse of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, crying out for justice from beneath the heavenly altar. And remember that seals one through four described wars and famines and plagues. These are the kinds of things that we experience today on the earth. And we were told with the breaking of the fourth seal that these were limited to one fourth of the earth. And so while the judgments of God were indeed portrayed there in the breaking of the first four seals, it was not the final judgment that was portrayed, but instead they were partial judgments, restrained judgments. And the same could be said about the first six trumpets. Uh, The seventh trumpet did indeed take us to the time of the end, but the first six did not. The judgments of God described there were restrained by God to affect only one third of the earth. That is the thing that is repeated throughout the trumpet cycle that only a third of the earth was permitted to be affected. And so uh, the judgments of God described there were restrained by God. Uh, they were partial judgments. Uh, intensification is communicated, the moving of from one-fourth to one-third of the earth from the seal to the trumpet cycle. Uh, but definitely not the full and final judgment of God being portrayed there in the first six trumpet blasts. Uh, but not so with these seven plagues. We're told from the outset, right as they are introduced, right as the angels are seen having these seven plagues being given to them, that these are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so this cycle, this cycle of seven that we are about to encounter, the bull cycle as it is called, is going to be a depiction not of partial judgments, not of, not of the kinds of things that we experience here on the earth, but, but it is going to be a depiction of the full and final outpouring of the wrath of God from beginning to end. In verses 5 and following, uh, we read this. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Uh, These angels that John introduced in verse 1 are now described in verse 5 as coming out of the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven, which had been opened up uh, before John Remember that the tabernacle that Israel constructed in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses and after the Exodus event, it was constructed according to the heavenly reality shown to Moses on the mountain. Remember that fact that the temple or the tabernacle that Moses did construct, or he did instruct that the people of Israel construct, was constructed after a heavenly model that was shown to him. Exodus 25.40 says so directly, so does Acts 7.44, and Hebrews 8.5 also emphasizes this, that the earthly tabernacle was a, a, a copy of heavenly realities. Uh, the earthly temple and the earthly tabernacle were not the originals, but were earthly copies which represented heavenly Realities And here, what is John seeing? He is not seeing the earthly thing, the tabernacle of Moses, but he is actually being given a glimpse into the heavenly realities. This temple or tabernacle that is opened up before him is one that is in, it is in heaven. And so he's being given a vision of the heavenly reality. These angels are seen proceeding from the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. The tabernacle was called the tent of witness or the tabernacle of testimony uh, 
Because it was there that the Ten Commandments were kept. And these Ten Commandments, they served as a testimony or witness against the people of Israel concerning their sin. Indeed, they did also function as a light unto their path so that they might live according to these ten words given to them. But they also functioned as a testimony or witness against them so that the people of Israel might be compared to what God's law says concerning their conduct. And the law for them, just as it does for us, did serve to actually condemn them concerning their wickedness. Um, The tabernacle was therefore both the place where God's people were to approach him in faith. It it is actually much more often referred to as the tent of meeting. It was a place where the people of God were to come and to encounter God and to worship him and to commune with him. It was that. But it was also the place from which the judgments of God would flow when the people were found living in perpetual and unrepentant disobedience to the commandments of God. And so this one place, the tabernacle, built by Moses, by the people of Israel as they sojourned in the wilderness, was both a place of worship and refuge for the faithful. It was a tent of meeting. And it was also the place from which the judgments of God did flow. It was a tent of witness. It was a place where the people of Israel would be tried by the law of God. And notice that the same is true of the heavenly tabernacle that John sees throughout the book of Revelation. Better yet, the earthly tabernacle was simply a visible representation of that which is true in heaven. God himself is a place of refuge for his people, isn't he? And we are invited to come before him and to to commune with him through faith in Jesus the Christ. He is a place of refuge for his people. He does meet with and shelter those who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. But it is also from him that judgment will flow. He indeed will judge the wicked on the last day. And what will be the basis for his judgment? What will be the basis for it? He will judge All who have transgressed his holy law. This law is contained within and summarized by the Ten Commandments. And it is also written upon the heart of man. And the fact that these angels come out of the sanctuary of the tent of witness. That is what it is called here in this text. The fact that they come out of that place and have in their hands the seven plagues which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. It shows us that God when he does judge fully and finally. He will judge all who have transgressed his Holy law, as given to us in summary form and contained within the Ten Commandments, but also his holy law as it is in heaven, the same law written upon the heart of man, according to Romans chapter 1. Notice that these seven angels who come forth from the sanctuary were clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests, Revelation fifteen six. And this is the way that Jesus was described as being dressed in Revelation 1.13. And the reason that they are described as being dressed like him is because they do represent him. They are his representatives. Verse 7, and one of the four living creatures, and, and so now you have to remember the four living creatures that were introduced earlier in the book of Revelation, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives Forever, forever and ever. 
And so the seven plagues, as they were called, are now described as seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. We will witness these seven bowls being poured out uh, one after another in chapter 16. Verse 8, And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now clearly, it is the outpouring of this final judgment being portrayed before us, and clearly uh, this outpouring of the judgment of God, of the wrath of God, is very awesome and very great. So that even in the heavenly realm here, you, can, you have to use your imagination. You, you see this heavenly tabernacle being filled with smoke, and no one could even come near. No one could even come near to the tabernacle. And so I want you to simply notice this, that all of chapter 15 is preparatory. It's making preparation for the great event that is going to be depicted, especially in chapter 16. No judgment is actually poured out here in chapter 15, but only preparations are being made. Literally, uh, literarily, I think this serves to create a sense of anticipation. Here, the event that is going to be described in chapter 16, the outpouring of these seven bowls of God's wrath, it, it's so great that it warrants our being prepared to, to receive it and, and to see it. Also, it seems to communicate something of the mercy of God, for He, by His mercy, does not give us what our sins deserve now, but is patient and long-suffering. And so chapter 15 also communicates a sense of delay. Aren't you grateful for this? That God, He would have done no wrong to simply pour out this wrath the moment we sin, you know. But in His mercy, He does delay. He does wait. He, 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 he gives us time so that repentance might take place uh, within us. Now thirdly, let us recognize how this passage pauses to give us a glimpse into the world of the redeemed. Verses 2 through 4 actually seem quite out of place. Uh, but I would argue that this is very intentional. In verse 1, the seven angels with the seven plagues are introduced. In verse 5 through 8, they become the focus again as they are prepared to pour out the wrath of God upon lawbreakers. So everything is about the final judgment and, and the wrath of God in verses 1 and then 5 and following. Uh, but in verse 2, here is what we read. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So, Right in the middle of all of this judgment talk, right in the middle of these portrayals of the wrath of God being prepared to be poured out, you have this scene where the redeemed of God are giving worship to God. And really, you should be used to this kind of thing by now in the book of Revelation. I want you to remember uh, the interludes that we found inserted in between seals 6 and 7 and trumpets 6 and 7. Do you remember those? The interludes that we... Uh, experience there. 
Uh, The focus in both the seal and trumpet cycle was mainly upon the ungodly and God's dealing with them. But before the end of these cycles were uh, brought to a completion, we encountered a pause where the focus of attention was shifted to the redeemed of God and their salvation in Christ Jesus. It was such a a beautiful thing to encounter, I think. Uh, Remember that between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals, we found inserted in chapter 7 a vision of the 144,000 sealed by God. And then a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Just standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And what were they doing? But they were giving praise to God. And so the vision of the redeemed in heaven there was inserted between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals. Do you remember encountering that? It's all about God's dealing with the wicked. Partial judgments being poured out. The seventh seal, also the sixth, would introduce the final judgment. But before you get to the end of it, what does God do? He gives us, in the book of Revelation, a glimpse of the redeemed. And what was the meaning of it? God knows who are His. He's able to keep them, even in the midst of all this turmoil, even in the midst of the judgments of God being poured out, He's able to keep His. They are sealed by Him. He is going to redeem a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Uh, That was the message communicated there. And something similar uh, is happening here in 15, 2 through 4. Preparations for the outpouring of God's wrath are being made. We will see the outpouring of God's wrath portrayed in chapter 16. But before we get there, God's word provides us with a picture of the redeemed. And where are they? Where are they exactly? So here it is. God's wrath is about to be poured out. But where are God's people? They are safely home and at peace. God's people, we must remember, are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God's people are not destined for the wrath that is about to be portrayed here in the book of Revelation with the outpouring of the bulls. Will God's people experience tribulation and even great tribulation in this world? Yes, but that is something different than the wrath of God poured out. It will be poured out only upon the wicked and the ungodly and the unbelieving. But God's people, those who have been redeemed from the earth, will be brought safely home. And will be with him in glory on that last day when the wrath of God is poured out. Why is this? How could it be? Why the distinction between these two peoples? It is because Christ has stood in our place. He has taken upon himself the punishment that we deserved. And we are found trusting in him. The wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon the ungodly is the same wrath of God that was poured out upon Christ in our place. And so the question is not, will some have their sins punished and others not? That is not the question, but the question is this, who has taken the punishment? Is it the sinner himself or is it Christ? Has he taken the punishment? All sins will be punished. The reason God's people will be found safely home with him in glory when the wrath of God is poured out is because Christ has already taken the wrath of God upon himself in their place. Uh, This, I think was the thing being symbolized in the previous passage too. In 14, 14 through 16, we saw a depiction, first of all, of the harvest of the righteous unto salvation on the last day, and then we saw a depiction of the harvest of the wicked unto condemnation. Do you remember that? And so in that passage, at the end of chapter 14, that's what we saw. Two harvests. One, a reaping of a harvest unto glory, those who 
believed, and two, a reaping of a harvest, a harvest of grapes, unto the outpouring of God's wrath. And here in this passage, preparations are being made for the outpouring of the wrath of God by the seven angels with seven plagues, which are the seven bulls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. But before even one of these bulls of the full and final wrath of God is poured out, we see that God's people are safely home. They are safely home. These are seen standing before or upon. There's kind of a difficulty in in, in, uh, translation here. Uh, The Greek word could either mean beside or upon. Uh, A sea of glass mingled with fire with harps of God in their hands. It's really a beautiful image. Um, And I want you to think about the imagery here. It's it's beautiful. Uh, But you must think about the imagery, not only with the rest of the book of Revelation in in mind, but the whole of Scripture. Where are the worshipers of God standing? They They are standing beside or upon a sea of glass mingled with fire. Remember that this sea of glass was first mentioned in Revelation 4-6 as being before the throne of God in heaven. On earth there was turmoil, but in heaven there is perfect tranquility. Uh, The seas of earth are tumultuous. They are stirred up. They are chaotic. But in heaven the sea is still as glass. Um, On earth... There is turmoil. In heaven there is perfect tranquility. The turmoil of this world, the the image there in Revelation 4, 6, was that the turmoil of this world cannot affect heaven. God is not disturbed or disrupted by his enemies. God is not affected from without. His heavenly kingdom and his heavenly purposes are never ultimately in danger. Also, remember that not long ago in the apocalypse, John saw a beast. And where did the beast rise out of? Do you remember? He rose out of... The sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Revelation 13.1. Again, the seas of this world are tumultuous. The beast rises from there, works for the dragon, and represents political powers that persecute the people of God. And so the people of God do suffer as they sojourn in this world. They are threatened constantly by tumultuous seas and the evil that rises from there. But here the saints are seen no longer battered by stormy seas no longer at war with the beast who rises from there, but they are at peace. The sea that they now stand upon, I prefer that translation actually because I think it gets more to the sense of of what's being communicated here. The sea that they now stand upon is like glass. All is right. All is as it should be. The people of God are there, the redeemed, standing before God, and they are at peace. And, And the sea is also said to be like glass, but here it is called glass mingled with fire. And we should remember that fire symbolizes judgment. The picture, I think, is that of a tumultuous sea made calm because the one who stirred up the sea by rising out of it has been judged by God and has been eternally condemned. Can you picture this now? A calm sea, but you can see just the the flames of fire that are kind of emanating through it somehow. Uh, What is the image? Well, that beast that you just saw rising out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13 that was stirring it up and causing trouble and turmoil for the people of God, bringing persecution to them, he has been eternally condemned and fully and finally judged. The sea has been made like glass now, so much so that the people of God are able to stand upon it. Think of Jesus' encounter with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and Peter wanting to 
Do you, you remember that image too? Just picture it. It all ties together eventually in some way, I think, here. Here we see the sovereign God making peace of the turmoil that is in this world, bringing his people safely home. And they sang a song, didn't they? Uh, it is called here the Song of Moses, the Servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb. Um, the original Song of Moses uh, was read at the beginning of this sermon from Exodus chapter 15. I hope you were paying attention to it. And I, I didn't say anything. I didn't introduce the, the song. I, I just hoped you were kind of able to, to, to imagine the placement of the song and when it was sung in the history of redemption. Uh, do you remember when uh, this song was sung? Um, it's easy to tell by just looking at Exodus chapter 14, if you were there in your Bibles. Uh, in Exodus chapter 14, it's there that we find the story of God's parting of the Red Sea at the hand of Moses so that the people of God could pass through to escape Pharaoh who had pursued them into the wilderness with his army. Uh, the song of Moses was a celebration of God's deliverance of his people through the tumultuous waters and from Pharaoh who in Ezekiel 29.3 is referred to as the great dragon. And so that's the original song of Moses there in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, but the song sung here in Revelation 15 is not exactly the same as the original song of Moses. Uh, for one, it is called not just the song of Moses, the servant of God, but also and the song of the Lamb. Uh, this song then is ultimately about Jesus, isn't it? It ultimately comes to focus not upon Moses and the deliverance that was accomplished through him, but it ultimately comes to focus upon Jesus the Christ. So it is different in that respect. Secondly, this song, sung in Revelation 15, is different in that it is about the accomplishment of things far greater and far more universal than what was accomplished at the Exodus event by the hand of Moses. It's about things far more universal. Remember, uh, that there were ten plagues leveled against the Egyptians at the hand of Moses. And they were awesome, weren't they? Uh, we teach our children, uh, children about them. It's important that we do. These plagues were, were awesome, the ones poured out upon Egypt as an act of judgment because of their mistreatment of the people of God. Uh, but they were nothing at all when compared to the seven plagues given by God and Christ to the seven angels that will be poured out on the last day, for they are the last, and with them the wrath of God is finished. Moses delivered Old Covenant Israel from Egypt. Christ, remember, delivered New Covenant Israel from things far greater than Egypt, from the power of sin and death. Moses defeated Pharaoh, but Christ has overcome the dragon himself, the beast and the false prophet. Moses led the people through the tumultuous waters of the Red Sea. I, I've often imagined, I've tried to imagine what that would have been like. To be pinned up against the waters of the Red Sea and to see that dragon Pharaoh pursuing you, you know. And to think, and this is what the people thought, we're, we're doomed. Why did we bother to follow, follow this man out into the, to the wilderness to die here? We're pinned in. And then Moses, at the commandment of God, lifts, lifts up his arms, lifts up his staff, and the seas are parted. Can you imagine walking through those tumultuous waters on dry ground? And then they get to the other side, and what happens except that the waters, those tumultuous waters, close in upon that dragon Pharaoh and consume him fully and finally. Uh, what an amazing thing it would have been to, to have witnessed all of that. But we must remember that Christ 
will still all waters at his return so that nothing will threaten his people at all for all eternity. He has delivered us from something far greater and he has accomplished a far greater salvation for us. And so the deliverance brought about through Moses did cause the Egyptians to give glory to God as well as the surrounding nations. They all did tremble with fear at the word of what had happened to the Egyptians as they pursued Israel. But at the return of Christ, all will bow the knee to confess that Jesus is Lord, either willingly or by compulsion. And this is why we hear the redeemed in Revelation 15 sing this song, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who on that day, when you do bring about this this great act of deliverance and this final act of deliverance, who's going to stand there and not give glory to you and confess that indeed Jesus is Lord? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, The meaning is this, the salvation provided for old covenant Israel by the hand of Moses pales in comparison to the salvation provided for the elect by Christ. The first exodus was but a precursor to the second exodus. The salvation given to Israel was just a symbol, a type, a shadow of the salvation that would be accomplished by Christ Jesus. Do you see all of the the symbolism here in the book of Revelation pointing in that direction? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of, of, of Christ. Why is it even called the song of Moses? I think it is in order to get our attention that what happened there at that Exodus event was a picture. As real as it was, it's, it was a historical event, but it was a picture of the salvation that would be accomplished by Christ Jesus our Lord on a much greater level, in a much more universal way. Brothers and sisters, uh, how then should we apply these truths to our, to our lives today? Um, I, I would ask this question. How will you fare when the seven angels with the seven plagues of God come forth from the heavenly tent of witness to judge fully and finally on that last day? How will you fare? Will you, will you stand or, or will you fall? That is a question that we need to consider. If you are trusting in your own righteousness, you will not stand, but will fall. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans three nineteen through 20 You will not fare well, you will not stand, if indeed you are trusting in yourself when those seven angels do come from the the, the tabernacle in heaven, the tent of witness, to judge on that last day. But if you are found believing in Christ, you will stand. You will be made to stand by the grace of God, being justified in Christ, having been washed of your sins and covered in His righteousness. And so, this passage and this repeated focus upon the final judgment is meant to drive us to Christ so that we be sure that we are in Him on that last day. We must be sure that When we pass from this world, when we breathe our last, we are found in Christ, for there's no room for repentance after after we pass from this world, after death. And so, friends, acknowledge your sin. Uh, Turn from it. Look to Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins, and then remain in Him. Cling 
to him. Uh, Your sins will be judged. The question is, who will take the judgment? The cup of God's wrath will be poured out upon your sins. Uh, The wrath will either be poured out upon you, or it has been poured out upon Christ. The cup of God's wrath will be drunk to the dregs. The question is, will you drink it? Or has Christ absorbed it in your place? You must believe upon him. You must turn from your sins and cry out to Christ saying, have mercy on me, Lord. I'm afraid that there are many in this world who just think so little of our sin and have no fear at all when it comes to the final judgment, when they should. I think these passages of Scripture, this repeated emphasis upon the final judgment, us being given different portrayals of it over and over again in the book of Revelation, should cause us to tremble at the thought of standing before God not clothed in Christ's righteousness. Look at how severe the judgments of God are. Look at how terrible and awesome they are. It should cause us to tremble and to run to Christ. And for those of you who are in Christ, I wonder, do you stand in awe of the salvation that has been provided for you in Christ Jesus? I don't know if I did a very good job at it this morning, but I tried in our short time together to just make little connections between the imagery here in the book of Revelation and the Old Testament and the Exodus event. And to me, it's helpful to go about it this way. I think it's helpful to imagine being amongst the freshly redeemed people of Israel after the Exodus. Just imagine that, having experienced all of that. So there you are, some little no-named Israelite, right? And there you are, working away in Egypt, slaving each and every day, just struggling to keep up with producing the bricks and the quota that's been assigned to you. And then this guy Moses comes out of the wilderness and starts to talk, big talk, you know, before Pharaoh himself. And you're looking at this and you're going, are you kidding me? What is this going to accomplish? Who are you to stand against this this beast of a man, Pharaoh, and all of his power and strength? And then these plagues begin to take place at his word, one and then two and then three and then on to ten. And here you are witnessing all of that and you're beginning to say, my goodness, it seems as if God is accomplishing something great. He is indeed going to redeem us. He's going to lead us out. And then you're finally sent out after that 10th plague and you're sent out with plunder. You're not sent out naked with nothing. You're sent out with with gold and, and silver and precious things. You've plundered the Egyptians and you're heading off into the wilderness. And then there you notice that Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's pursuing you into the wilderness place and you lose heart. You're filled with despair. But then all of a sudden something greater yet happens and the sea is parted. You walk through and your enemy is consumed. So imagine standing there on the opposite side of the Red Sea, looking back upon all of that. Would you not be astonished? Would you not be amazed at the greatness of God? Would you not be compelled to give Him praise with all that is in you? My goodness, look at what our God has accomplished for us. But why is it as Christians that we can get so much more excited about the Exodus event? We can enter into that story and stand in amazement about all that happened there Uh, to the people of Israel and to the Egyptians and that great act of deliverance. But when we think about Christ, sometimes we we, we just think about it in kind of uh, ho-hum terms, you know. Maybe it's because that was all visible. I don't know. That was all tangible. But the, the things that Christ accomplished, He accomplished in the heavenly realm. But I think those visible and tangible things did happen in human history in order to picture for us The greater things that Christ has accomplished. And certainly he did do things visibly and tangibly in his earthly ministry in order to demonstrate that something better was about to happen. And he did accomplish it. Indeed, 
the most visible thing of all, the most significant thing of all that did happen uh, with Christ was that he died and then he rose from the dead on the third day. And he presented himself alive to many and he ascended to the right hand of God where he is now seated, having defeated all of his and all of our enemies fully and finally. And we do wait for his return when he will make all things new. Between now and then, brothers and sisters, let us believe these things from the heart. And let us stand in awe of all that has been accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And let us give him praise. Let us devote the whole of our lives to him and follow him faithfully in this world as we sojourn in these wilderness places. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for um, Christ our Lord. As we think, Lord, of the whole history of redemption, as we think of um, our sin, our fall from Uh, that state of perfection there in the garden. It is amazing, Lord, that you have determined to show us grace. And then for you to show us grace in this way is so much more amazing and astonishing that you, Lord, uh, were willing to send your son to die and to suffer for us. We are grateful, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be able to wrap our minds around everything that we do have in Christ Jesus, all the benefits that are found in him. We thank you for this great deliverance. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. We thank you for that victory. We thank you, Lord, that you have delivered us and you have given us everything needed for life and godliness in this world. Lord, help us in our sojourning. May we not be like the people of Israel who after experiencing that great act of deliverance did struggle to walk faithfully before you in the wilderness. They doubted, Lord. They grumbled and they complained. They were so easily distracted. They were so easily overwhelmed with fear. Lord, I pray it would not be so of us, but we, as we look back upon the redemption that Christ has earned, may we move forward with boldness in this world to follow you with all of our heart, Lord. Do increase our faith, Lord. Encourage us, strengthen us for the journey ahead. We do look forward to that day when you do bring us safely home and we stand before you giving you worship on that sea of glass mingled with fire. Lord, how we long to be at peace with you on that day. Lord, help us as we journey, but we do say, come quickly, Lord. And all of God's people say, amen.